we are all done a disservice as a society when we do not know our collective history. You know, like when we're, you know, when we have certain narratives and we don't quote and cite and also like just acknowledge the beauty of everything that makes Texas what it is. And that's not just one thing. You know, Texas is not a monolith and being a Black Texan is not a monolith. With more than 3.9 million, Texas has more Black residents than any other state. When Texas was first settled, it was, of course, settled outside of the United States, but it was basically settled as a colony of the United States where the institution of slavery could and would be practiced even when it was declared illegal uh, by Mexico. If you grew up in Texas (laughs) and you took that one seventh grade Texas history class, you know the one I'm talking about, then yeah, you probably already know what happens next. But if you didn't, I can help you out. It goes something like this, okay? So the Alamo. Texas defeats Mexico at the Battle of San Jacinto. Then Texas becomes an independent nation for a decade before finally joining the U.S. as a slave state in 1845. Anglos who settled in Texas continue to bring their enslaved people into Texas at the cost of actually going to war, right? And so they go to war and break away from Mexico in 1836. And the first thing they do in their constitution is declare that basically Texas will be a slave republic. And they write a constitution that allows for that. And within the republic years, the nine years of the republic, um, the numbers of enslaved people outpace the, the growth of Anglo settlement in Texas. And from there, it just it just keeps continuing until 1860 and 1865, really. And Texas is now the second most populous state in the country. I'm Bailey Friday, and Texas wants to know how did Texas become home to the most black residents in the country? So California actually has the most multiracial Black residents, and New York has the most Hispanic Black residents. But Texas is home to the most non-Hispanic, single-race Black residents. So what is the most significant event in history that correlates to the number of Black people in Texas? Oh, enslavement. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever. I think we'd be remiss to not cite that as a fact for why there is so many, you know, why Black people are coming here and why Texas is like, you know, just a a place that Black people are. But then, you know, not to forget when we're talking about the history of the place, Texas was initially a state that could have enslaved people. It was founded on that premise. It's one of the main reasons, despite what we learn in school, that Texas actually, you know, that the settlers wanted to split from Mexico was because of enslavement. And um, it was actually that white people that were coming to settle in Texas would get additional land if they bought enslaved people in Texas. So, you know, like just from a historical perspective, there has always been a lot of Black people here. That's Amber Sims. 
I am actually a native Texan. I was born in Dallas uh, and I'm a fifth generation Texan and my dad is from Birmingham. And so I say that I'm a Texas Bama in the words of Beyonce, but my parents met here in college. She's the executive director of the nonprofit Young Leaders Strong City. I realized like despite being very educated and going to some of the best schools, I didn't have all of the tools that I needed to be able to advocate for myself and even in the workplace to call racism into being. So our mission is to educate, equip, and activate young people to be able to advocate for themselves and for others and to aid in the building and the rebuilding of a more inclusive, equitable society. We'll hear more from Amber in a bit, but first, let's go back more than 150 years to the end of the Civil War. That's when the cattle drives that Texas has become so famous for really took off. Black cowboys who were once the property of cattlemen now find themselves with a a choice to get involved in the livestock trade, which, as we basically know, blossoms, it expands tremendously after the Civil War. And so what we see is approximately a third of the people of color who go up the trail are actually cowboys of color. And that doesn't even account for the number of of Black cowboys and ranchers who stay behind uh, managing stock, raising their own stock, and find themselves in a position where they're almost equal with white contemporaries. That is Deborah Lyles. She's the W.K. Gordon Chair of Texas History at Tarleton State University in Stephenville. I study the correlation between cattlemen who used enslaved labor and where where a lot of people study cash crop agriculture. I study basically the the frontier region, which is what we think of as I-35, and where a lot of freedmen found themselves trapped in the sharecropping system. It's interesting to me that when they first start going up the trail, they get paid the same wages as white cowboys do. Uh, This is not generally something that we, we see, right? And so that ability to actually make a living and, and grow a stock that will add to their wealth is, is something that is not necessarily thought about um, as an opportunity for freed Black people after the war. But Lyle says that window of time did not last long. The struggles here in Texas are going to be just as much as any other Southern state. The majority of Texas wanted to secede. The majority of Texas believed in the cause. And the majority of, of Texans believed that African Americans were less than citizens. She cites an Erath County arrest log from 1877 to 1910 in which Black Texans were singled out. So you see a lot of Irish and Mexican and, and other people. Um, but when it comes to Black people, they're not listed as Americans. They're listed as Negroes. So right away, even in the post-war from 77 all the way to 1910, African-Americans, Black people are still not classified as Americans in the minds of the people who are doing the resting. When you see articles in the newspaper, it's always the name of a person, a Negro. They're, they're always separated. They're always made to be something other than a normal person in society. They have to always be specified that they're a person of color. And so always, no matter what, it's always an obstruction right from the get-go to living a normal, 
everyday life that other people experience. How have Black Texans shown resilience throughout history? You see so much progress and so much determination to live a better life. You see, for example, I'm as I said earlier, I study enslavement. One of the people I'm writing about is Oliver Loving, who was a white cattleman here in the, in the side of Texas in, in Parker County. And one of the enslaved people he had was Louis Swan. Louis Swan, after the war, goes on and takes advantage by working, doing any work he possibly can and buys land and buys more land and then gives land back to the community for a a black school and also for a church and for a graveyard. And he then hands some of this land down to his family. And you see that every opportunity that can be taken, they take it. The land originally that he obtained was granted by the state of Texas in in what we call preemption. Uh, But he continues to buy other land on top of that. And he not only pays for it, but he pays for it sooner than it was expected to be paid for. Um, He's working hard and making a living for himself and his family. There's this whole narrative uh, in Texas that, um, especially in Dallas, that the civil rights movement didn't really happen. And that there's this book that's gone around by Jim Schutz and it's called The Accommodation. And the premise of the book is that there was an accommodation, you know, meaning like a compromise between black and white communities around like, we'll give you this if you don't do this, black people. This is not the first time the book, The Accommodation, has come up on Texas Wants to Know. When we did our episode last fall on the history of Fair Park, it was mentioned when we talked about the removal of thousands of black families from the area to make way for more parking around the Cotton Bowl. If you don't riot, if you stay in your place, if you know where you are, and that that there was like a barter system and a buyout, but also what that narrative misses is the fact that there was the civil rights movement in Dallas, that there were Black people, you know, and white people who were in solidarity that were advocating for a more equitable society. It just wasn't well documented. As Texas grows as a business hub with companies from all over the country relocating to DFW, Austin, and other cities, Sim says job opportunities have not necessarily been equally distributed. Dallas has some of the big Fortune 500 companies headquartered here. And, you know, like also, you know, the economic interests will say it's because of no taxes, you know, no state taxes and Dallas is good for business. Um, But also what that means on the other side of that for Black people, especially what those narratives mean for us is in some instances, if you're, you know, more working class, it means lower wages. In the Houston area, for example, median household income for Black residents lagged behind that of white and Hispanic residents in 2022. That's according to the Houston State of Health. The median income for Black households was just under $55,000. To put that into perspective for you, it's $20,000 less than white households and $2,000 less than Hispanic households. Just because Texas is doing well economically, does it mean that like, despite our black population being really, really big and there are things happening, you know, at a middle-class and upper middle-class level, there are still huge disparities. Similar data has emerged in the Austin area where according to the Austin American Statesman, black residents now make up less than 10% of the city's population. Meanwhile, those percentages are growing in many central Texas suburbs like Buda and Leander. Sim says one of her goals is simple, 
to educate younger generations about the true story of Black history in Dallas. There's books and, and research, but it's like, how do we republish these works? How do we talk about it more? My work with Young Leaders Strong City is all about empowering young people to say that the SNCC, the organizing group existed here in Dallas. There was a civil rights movement. We just had, a, there's an African-American museum here, you know, in Dallas, it's one of the best in the country that we created Juneteenth, which is like, you know, really entangled with joy and beauty and the things that our ancestors who were freed from enslavement were fighting for are still some of the things that we're grappling with. And yet, you know, there are innovative ways in which our community has come together to like show pride, to show love, in which we have contributed to Texas to make it what it is today. And that makes me like really hopeful because that makes me uh, know that the young people that I work with, that the work that I do can change Texas in a way that includes me. And while she says there is a lot of work to be done, the summer of 2020 showed her that society is capable of change. I have been able to better see how progress isn't just linear, how it goes like this and like this and how it can be thwarted. I have all, like, I also know that there is progress because we are seeing regression. And I just want to like say that that's because Black people and community that are in support of saying that Black, Black Lives Matter, but also, you know, that like it is our collective humanity made significant progress. My organization was fully funded. I've worked on Young Leaders Strong City with uh, community members since 2014. We never were able to get a budget to do this work. With what happened in 2020, people were able for some reason, you know, put on some new glasses or something, but able to see that racial equity work needed to be funded. And my organization was one of the organizations that benefited from that. And there were more organizations that benefited from that as well. We got people to say out loud and watch that there was and say that there was a problem with policing in this country and conversations, you know, that I never thought that we would be able to have. We were able to have. I'm Bailey Friday at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thank you so much for joining me on our podcast, Texas Wants to Know. If you liked the show, please give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Chris Blake and Savannah Jones, original music by Michael Eisenstein, editorial support from Cooper Mall. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan.